Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on this dreary, so far anyway, Wednesday. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. And happy to welcome back to our WKXL microphones, and Neil Levesque. Neil is the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. Neil, how are you today? I'm great, Ken. Great to be on. Thanks I, for having me on. Well, it's always our pleasure. And I guess the big question uh, this morning, because we're hearing about it so much uh, on the news these days, is uh, whether Donald Trump will actually be on the New Hampshire primary ballot. It's uh, a little bit up in the air right now. Well, I think what's happened is someone has filed a complaint, essentially. Um, but whether or not that complaint has any validity is a big question mark. And I think, you know, there's 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 questions about whether or not somebody was involved with an insurrection as to whether or not they can be on the ballot. Keep in mind that the former president um, has not been convicted of any crime relating to those activities. So, uh, you know, I can say that someone is, uh, is, is all kinds of a scandal, you know, or a thief or what have you, but if they haven't been convicted of the crime, it's really hard to say that they can't be uh, on the ballot, in my opinion. I know that the attorney general is looking at the, the issue, um, but by no means does that mean that uh, former president take, being taken off the ballot. I got an interesting uh, flyer in the mail yesterday. I mean, I, I mean, everybody's getting a lot of uh, political correspondence these days uh, in their mail, in their email, on their texts. And uh, this one was interesting, though. This was from uh, Americans for Prosperity Action. Are you familiar with them? Yes. Uh, they're quite active in the state of New Hampshire. Um, I'm sure it was probably like like getting the National Geographic magazine these days in your in your mail when you, when you open up your mailbox there's so much political stuff in there <laughs> and it's so glossy but yes um they're associated with uh um the the Koch organization or at least one of the brothers mm-hmm. um and they're quite active and I would assume that I didn't see it but I'm assuming it was anti Trump well, I, I, I will read you the whole thing because it doesn't take very long. It says, Americans would choose Biden over Trump's drama and chaos. Biden's ticket to another four years, Trump as GOP nominee. Don't give Biden what he wants. We need a new leader. So it's kind of anti-both. Yeah, well, it's a great message, right? So what these candidates who are running against Trump have not been able to figure out is how do we chip away at the former president's lead? And I think what AFP Americans for prosperity is attempting to do is say, Hey, look, you know, you may like Donald Trump, but Donald Trump loses to Biden. And so if you don't like Biden, you can't vote for Trump. And it's a pretty interesting argument. You know, the data, if you look at the polling is, is behind that argument. So if you take an average voter right now and you look at the data, most will say that, you know, Biden is not their favorite or he's too old or 
They don't like the direction of the country, et cetera, et cetera. Biden, not good, right? And then you say to that same voter, if it's Trump versus Biden, who are you voting for? And they vote Biden. Biden has a 12 to 14 point lead in a general election ballot here in the state of New Hampshire. And when you take his unfavorables, it doesn't make any sense, right? But basically what they're saying is they don't like uh, the, the menu that's on the plate, but they're going to eat it instead of the alternative. And and so I think what Americans for Prosperity is trying to do is, is say, hey, you know, if you like Biden, a vote for Trump is going to mean four years for Biden. Yeah, there you go. So the, the message is clear. Uh, the Republicans need another nominee. <laughs> for, that's that's their opinion anyway, and and obviously it uh, is reflected in the polls, the numbers that uh, you just mentioned. So uh, it's it's you know how are we perceived? I, I wonder, Neil. How are we perceived around the rest of the world? We have you know Donald Trump, you know, leading by a wide margin in the in the Republican uh, primary, if, if the poll numbers are correct, and of course. Uh, Joe Biden uh, is presumed to be uh, the nominee for the Democrats uh, once again. How are we perceived around the rest of the world when you have both leading candidates, uh, you know, being really investigated, both of them really, for criminal activity? Well, I think it's not good. And I think that if you take the 91 counts against the former president, the scandals around Hunter Biden, if you take both of their ages, which, you know, Ronald Reagan was being questioned when he was 69 years old. Right. And that's and young. <laughs> yeah. And you mix it all up. I think that most people would kind of, you know, around the world would probably scratch their head. Um, the point is, is that the former president is a known commodity. And for all intents and purposes, he's acting like an incumbent. People know who he is. And. He, rec- he represents a certain thing that Republican candidates, that Republican voters like. You can't deny that. He has a huge lead. Despite all of these things and all of these, you know, obituaries people have written about him, the fact is, though, that Biden has his problems, too. But at this point, I do think that there's something to the AFP argument, which is, you know, uh, if Trump is the nominee, there are people that are going to vote for him for, to be the nominee, but they will never vote for Donald Trump in a general election. And he has a ceiling. And you can, you can, people either love him or they hate him. And it's very hard. You could spend all kinds of money on advertising, all kinds of things, but it's going to be very hard for him to break that ceiling. Now, there are some polls that show him that, you know, he could beat Biden. Or Biden could all of a sudden, you know, have some health thing, and people say, well, you can't vote for somebody that, you know, has a health problem or, or what have you. But this is really strange territory. I mean, it is strange stuff. And then you have someone like Vivek Ramaswamy, who basically has taken the playbook from Donald Trump and says Donald Trump is the best president we've ever had or whatever he said, something along those lines. And basically emulating him as sort of Trump Jr., I guess in the hope that if Trump stumbles or something happens to him legally, then Vivek is there, and and his Trump's it's Trump's supporters that Vivek is concerned about because he doesn't want to be accused of sort of that guy that took down Donald Trump. So he's trying to stand there, 
and be the uh, uh, the victor in the end and collecting some of the Trump spoils. But uh, that's a, a controversial position, too. It'll be interesting to see whether or not if he creeps up in the polls, if Trump turns his, his focus on him. Um, it's a very strange election. It, it, it really and truly is. And you, you've seen many. Uh, and uh, th- this is really unprecedented. I mean, we are in uncharted waters right now, for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and Ramaswamy uh, was very Trump-like, I thought, uh, during that first debate uh, last week. I mean, he was really stirring things up uh, from the start. Yeah, and, then, you know, that kind of controversial, very much in-your-face sort of persona uh, which is really interesting. You know, I've said that if if we were choosing uh, the CEO for Coca-Cola, would we put eight candidates on a stage and say, okay, we're going to choose based upon uh, how they answer a particular question and whether or not they get a sing or an against their opponent? And it's a strange situation. And with 4,000 members of the audience, it's almost appalling because they're now participating in the debate. There were people yelling at the stage, yeah. booing, all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's, remember the old Jerry Springer show? Oh, sure. And, yeah. I mean, it was as much about the audience or the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah. It's as much about the audience reaction <laughs> to something happening as it is to anything else. And it's, it's kind of a, it's a strange situation because is that really the way that we should pick the president of the United States? It's a good question. Neil, Neil Levesque is with us, the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at the St. Anselm College. And I know you had a, a visitor to the Institute uh, last weekend in uh, Vermont, Independent Senator uh, Bernie Sanders. What were your takeaways from uh, Bernie's visit? Well, we were really blessed to have him uh, Saturday. Um, let me tell you, we didn't really advertise that he was coming too much. I didn't put it out to my usual email group because there were so many people that showed up. It was amazing. And he gave a speech, and but he's supportive of Joe Bud. Yeah, I, I know that he had some, some positive things to say and, and a few, uh, you know, not so positive things to say. But uh, in, in, in the bottom line is that, uh, yeah, he was uh, trying to, I, I guess... Uh, energize the troops and uh, go out and vote for Joe. But, uh, Neil, we have to take a quick break. Hang in there. We will be uh, right back. Okay. Kale and Company continues right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Neil Levesque is with us on this Wednesday. Talking about uh, the visit of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders to the St. Anselm campus over the weekend. And, and I know he is in support, obviously, of, uh, of uh, Joe Biden. I mean, Bernie is not running this time around, but I bet many in that audience on uh, that afternoon, uh, Neil, uh, were wishing that Bernie was running again. Yes, he has some strong support from a lot of different people. And there were a lot of, you know, people wearing shirts of Bernie and things. You know, uh, he's 81 right now, turning 82. Um, 
and he supported the president. I thought that he might open the door a little bit. And that is as if, if for some reason, Biden uh, is not going to be the nominee. Progressives like Bernie Sanders would probably want to have an influence over who is the nominee. And that's what I thought he would do. But his speech was basically saying that um, these are the things that progressives should be caring about, what we should be doing for all Americans, and that he's supportive of Biden. So um, it was a, it, we, I'm glad that he came, and it was a good speech and well-received, huge crowd. He had to go outside and address the crowd outside because of so wow. many people, and the fire marshal would have shut me down. Um, so that's the kind of thing on a Saturday that, that took place. Um, and, uh, he's still obviously quite popular here, uh, in New Hampshire. Well, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, so Neil, I know recently, not that long ago, you hosted the, uh, the no labels folks and, uh, any traction there? I mean, uh, is there still that possibility that we could have a, a third party as it were candidate? Well, there'll definitely be some third-party candidates, and um, I don't know whether or not No Labels will run a ticket. I don't think they know yet. Um, Joe Manchin came up on that trip, John Huntsman, Joe Lieberman, but Manchin was definitely the, the star, and he he is a very talented politician, um, and I really enjoyed uh, having him. He was uh, pretty impressive. Uh, on the scale that, you know, I'm around a lot of candidates. He's, he was a pretty impressive uh, political person. Um, that being said, I think that most people, when we vote for president, we vote for a person. And we don't say, well, we're going to vote for this ticket. Um, and it's so very hard for a candidate uh, to run as an independent without the party apparatus. Meaning, you know, if you go into Hopkinton, New Hampshire, there's a Democratic chair, they have a Democratic organization, uh, and, and it's sort of a turnkey operation in all these places across the country. And it's very hard for an independent, you know, even somebody like, um, uh, oh God, I lost, I forgot his name, uh, our friend from Texas who ran in the 1990s. Um, you know, it's very hard, or even Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt ran after being president, extremely popular person, ran as an independent, did not win, ran as a bull moose party. But um, that was Ross Perot, I was thinking. Ross Perot, okay. I can't believe, you know, (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) But even someone like that, a billionaire with money and, you know, et cetera, it's hard. I think that, again, going back to what I said previously, that if Trump and Biden are the nominees, I guess if there was ever a chance that someone could run as an independent and win, it could be this election. It's still remote, and I would say that it would have to be a Republican uh, Southerner if if they were to uh, if a, there was a winning candidate. And I was thinking of Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, mm-hmm. probably be the candidate who have the best shot at potentially winning as an independent. If it, if it were to be, let's just uh, theorize, if it were to be Joe Manchin as that uh, independent uh, candidate, you, you'd have to think uh, that would hurt Biden more than Trump. Well, that's what a lot of people are concerned about. Uh, he is a Democrat. Uh, he is the most centrist 
politician in, in the country. Uh, he drives the White House crazy, but that doesn't mean that Democrats necessarily uh, would vote for him and or Republicans. You know, a lot of the times people are pretty partisan uh, when you come down to a general election. Uh, when you're doing polling and things like that, you pretty much know where people stand based upon where they voted last time. And so it's hard to have them break away from a party uh, to vote for someone else. I think, though, that uh, there are a lot of Republicans that uh, are not happy with Trump being the nominee um, and will not vote for him in a general election. And that may be uh, an opening for a potential independent candidate. Yeah. I I think Neil, if there was any election cycle that uh, where a third can, a third party candidate might be successful, it could be this one. It could be this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that basically, again, going back to the polling, where you have people who say, well, they're not happy with Biden. They don't. The country's on the wrong track. They think he's too old. Not happy. Not happy. Not happy. And then you say, if it's Biden versus Trump, who are you voting for? Biden. So it is the um, it's it's a classic scenario where people are voting for someone that they really don't like because it's better than the other person that they really don't like. So and, you know, I'm sure that listeners are saying, well, I like Trump and I don't know what he's talking about. But I'm looking at the polling and there are a lot of people that have been turned off by what is uh, contained in these 91 indictments. and. Uh, and some of the facts surrounding January 6th, for example, that say that Trump will, will never get their, their vote. And so that's a, the hindrance, although he remains solidly popular, solidly in the Republican Party. And, of course, he did skip the, uh, the first debate last week in, in Milwaukee. The next one uh, is uh, coming up uh, later in September, on September 27th. Uh, he sat down with Tucker Carlson instead. Did did you see that interview, Neil? I didn't. Uh, I guess you can see it on Twitter, um, <laughs> but I did not see that. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of more of the same. I think that, you know, if you're not going to participate in debates, it's saying something. He obviously doesn't want to take the risk um, and doesn't want to lower his numbers. His numbers are solid. And whether it's the starting in 2016 with the Billy Bush tapes and all of the situations that he's gone through uh, and, and crises that he's created, um, he doesn't sink in the polls amongst Republicans. And so he's got a solid base there. And why take the risk of going and, and debating these folks? Very true. I, I don't know how many people did see that interview with Tucker Carlson. I, I had no idea where to find it. Uh, so I, <laughs> I never saw it, and uh, I, I have a feeling not too many did. That that would that would be my impression. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the numbers are. Obviously, Tucker Carlson is trying to, uh, because he came from the Fox network and the debate was on Fox. You know, he's trying to basically stick them, and uh, I don't know whether or not he did that. But the corporate national media uh, is a very cutthroat place, and. Um, the, the, the news that we get out of these outlets, uh, is designed to basically attract attention a lot of times because they want eyeballs. They want viewers. 
So, Neil, in that in that last debate uh, a week ago, who who did themselves the most good? Geez, you know, this is interesting because I think that everybody sort of has a different answer. It's almost like if you liked the candidate, they did pretty well. And a lot of people said, you know, Nikki Haley did really well. I was surprised by Pence and how strong he was against Vivek. That was my own impressions. I also thought that Pence was honing in on Iowa conservative, Christian conservative voters. He might have been saying things that you'd say, well, why is he talking about abortion and things like that? But I think that he was targeting a certain audience and did so very well. But I think overall, you know, a lot of people walked away and said, oh, that's Vivek Ramaswamy, that person everybody's talking about. Um, Vivek has come from almost nowhere. He's a wealthy guy. uh, And he wrote a book called Woke Inc. And now he's running for president. And uh, it's it's. It's an interesting tactic, as I mentioned, where you're basically praising the person that has the lead uh, (laughs) rather than sort of trying to uh, take them down. And, uh, you know, sometimes maybe that would work, but other times you sort of go towards a general election and you say, well, I guess that person won. Well, they had a lead in the beginning, they had a lead in the middle, and they had a lead at the end. Um, And that may be what happens to Trump. Well, he certainly uh, made a mark uh, for himself during that debate, and, and I'm sure it was, in, in some sense, a, a coming-out party for Vivek uh, in other parts of the country. I mean, uh, we're very familiar with him because he's been in New Hampshire so often, but uh, I'm sure in other parts of the country they're not uh, or weren't as familiar with him as we are. I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. Well, Neil, as always, great to catch up with you. There's always so much we can talk about, and uh, and we'll have you back real soon. All right. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me on. All right. Anytime, Neil. Neil Levesque, the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. And coming up, we're going to talk a little football. Find out about the origins of the National Football League right here. On WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, Kale and Company Live. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. We'll be right back. Back, it is Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And with the uh, NFL season just around the corner now, we're going to talk a little football. And my guest on this portion of the show is Greg Fisery. Greg, do I have your name correct? Fisery. Fisery. Okay, Fisery. I was wondering about that. And uh, Greg has written a uh, terrific new book, although I haven't, uh, I have not read it yet, but I've read uh, quite a bit about it. Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story with a uh, foreword by Franco Harris. And uh, Greg, you are a, a Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania native, and I I read recently that you spent about 15 years researching this book. It's true. It's one of those fun stories where someone finds a treasure in their attic or their grandmother's house. And back in 2007, uh, my grandmother passed away, and I found a treasure trove of pre-NFL pro football history in, in her basement. Knew a little bit about it growing up. She did have a few pictures on the wall, but of his teams. Uh, these, this is my great grandfather, a man named Bob Shiring, in a little 
uh, industrial suburb of Pittsburgh called Wilmerding. It was a Westinghouse Corporation community. And uh, she had told me some family lore about him being professional and there being sort of world championship teams before the NFL, which was kind of mysterious. I, nobody talks about that period. And when I found another box of about 100 pictures from his career, I knew instantly that it was very special. And it started a journey that led to the Hall of Fame and a, a journey of discovery that uh, solved a, 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 the outstanding mystery of the pre-NFL era um, from over 100 years ago. It is a, an amazing story, and I understand that it was your great-grandfather that snapped the football for the first ever forward pass in pro football history. <laughs> it's true. He was the center. And at that time in 1906, the year that the forward pass was legalized, after 20-plus deaths um, from football injuries in 1905 uh, at the college and amateur level, President Teddy Roosevelt uh forced some rule changes that, that really transformed the game in 1906. The, a committee formed with luminaries of the game that implemented the, the forward pass, uh, 10 yards for a first down instead of five, uh, a line of scrimmage with a neutral zone to eliminate the dangerous flying wedge B formation. And so it had been known that the Maslin Tigers, um, his team, through the first forward pass that year. Um, but it wasn't exactly known who threw the first forward pass. But it was thought that it was a fellow named Parrot, but my research found some newspapers that had never been discovered before with some game accounts that showed it was actually a, a different fellow named Charlie Moran, who was later became a famous baseball umpire. Uh, but he, he was actually the, the first thrower of, of, the, of the pass. Well, it's it's uh, really intriguing. Uh, the uh, but really the the origins of pro football uh, go back to the the late eighteen uh, hundreds, really. And and who was responsible for it? Well, American football evolved out of rugby, and there was a, a club up in New York that started experimenting with with some different rules uh, initially. And they they put together a, a game in, in, in a little league that, that, I guess, kind of nebulous, but first started American football, technically. But as far as college football goes, it was 1869 that the first college football game was played between Princeton and Rutgers in New Jersey. And the Ivy League sort of ran with it there. The big three were Harvard, Princeton, and Yale and Yale in particular, and a fellow named Walter Camp, who's now honored with the title of the father of American football, uh, led the committees that, that evolved the rules every year. And, and slowly the game diverged further away from rugby, uh, changes such as the um, you know, plays between, you know, the rugby as a constant play with the scrummage that they call So Stopping the play, having you know, calling a play, setting a new play—that that was a, a big step forward in the 1880s or so. And um, but basically, the game looked a lot like rugby into the 1890s. But 
uh, as I said, 1906 was, was the big transformational year, but professional football came in 1892, uh, and that was defined as the first player who received cash to play football. So uh, after college football started around 1869, uh, young adults still wanted to play uh, at an amateur level recreationally, and Pittsburgh had a lot of money in the Industrial Revolution from steel industry and coal and so on. So they, they had a, sort of elite-ish amateur clubs that sponsored several sports in the AAU, which we still have today, yeah. Amateur Athletics Union. And they would play basketball and swimming and wrestling. And so at a national level, or national competitions, people really were excited about. But when football got into the mix, eventually the rivalries in Pittsburgh led to what they first called semi-pro. And that meant getting maybe a membership or a job or food or a watch or something to, to entice good players, you know, ex-college players to play. And eventually, of course, somebody gets paid cash. But under the table, they didn't want to get kicked out of the AU. So that, that's really why it wasn't known for decades how it happened. But it was an accounting ledger that was found by the Hall of Fame in the 60s from the Allegheny Athletic Association in Pittsburgh that showed that a fellow from Yale named William Pudge Heffelfinger was paid $500 in cash, a hefty sum, to play a game for them that year. And it went on from there. Yeah, and, uh, of course, now we have, uh, in in uh, collegiate sports, we have name, image, and likeness compensation, but uh, we, we even had payments uh, way back when, huh? <laughs> I, I think it's never stopped, probably. Uh, <laughs> but there, there was a there is a fellow in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, named John Brawlier, and uh, he actually lived his whole life thinking he was the first professional player, and he sort of boasted about receiving ten dollars and a cake to play for the Latrobe <laughs> Athletic Association in 1895, and he was honored by the NFL, uh, which started in 1920. Uh, as the first professional player with a lifetime pass and the number one on it and everything. But um, he took uh, meticulous notes and, and records of his experiences playing and photographs, which are all available at the wonderful Latrobe uh, Historical Society there. And uh, he, he mentioned on several instances how he and his Teammates in college at West Virginia and some other places were were paid. So uh, it's just the way it's always been. And Greg Fraseri is with us, and he has written a, a wonderful uh, new book called Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. And, uh, uh, Greg, how did uh, pro football uh, coincide with the growth of uh, industry in, in both western Pennsylvania and uh, in Ohio in the early 20th century? Well, um, the industry initially sponsored the, some of the teams, not just the amateur athletic clubs, but um, Homestead in particular was, is a town about five miles east of Pittsburgh. And the Homestead, it's a steel uh, community. Homestead Steel became Carnegie Steel, became U.S. Steel. So for employees, uh, the industry would sponsor football uh, and other activities on, on the weekends for recreation. And so with all the money in Pittsburgh, the, there was a, a dynamic to uh, su 
support athletics. And Homestead actually became the quote-unquote world champions uh, for two years in 1900 and 1901. And my great-grandfather sort of rose from uh, amateur teams to playing on that 1901 world championship team because they didn't have a full schedule of pro teams. They would play other colleges and, and amateur teams. And his amateur team that was very good played Homestead, and they saw how good he was and invited him to be on their team. So that was sort of how his career developed. But after 1902, none of the teams in Pittsburgh could ever made a dollar of profit. And so they, they figured it wasn't going to work. And it died in Pittsburgh. So Ohio, however, had great amateur teams as well. And they were in, motivated to do better in the sort of little town of Maslin, Ohio, which was a fascinating, wonderful town, very old town uh, with a lot of football tradition there, got the idea to bring him and three of his teammates out from Pittsburgh to help win the Ohio State Championship in 1903. And that's how pro football moved west to Ohio. And it grew tremendously there for three or four years until 1906, when it all blew up in an alleged uh, game-fixing scandal, which is really the heart of the story and the cold case uh, about why pro football died for, for about a decade after that. Well, uh, Greg, can you stay with us for a couple of minutes? Sure. have to take a quick break here. Uh, Greg Fossery is our guest. And we're talking about his uh, new book, Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. And we will be right back here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Talking football on this segment of the show. Greg Fraseri is with us, author of Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. And before the break, we were talking about uh, some uh, illegal gambling that was taking place. Of course, I think uh, legal gambling now is uh, something that really powers the National Football League. But uh, back in the day, back in the early 1900s, it nearly took the league down. Right. It was really interesting as I was researching to, to see how frequently gambling was mentioned around baseball and football. Yeah. And it was a little controversial. They, they tried to keep it away from baseball. There was even an interesting photo uh, I included in the book of a great pitcher named Christy Matthewson, who also played college football on the 1902 World Championship team with my great-grandfather as well. But... Um, he was warming up, and, and behind him, uh, there was a sign on the on the field that no gambling allowed. So I think they were always wary of gamblers trying to uh, infiltrate the players and, and corrupt the game. But uh, in football, it was odds were frequently mentioned before the games, or, or even point spreads, and people seemed to have their bookmakers ar- around town and, and so on. But uh, Sometimes it was even mentioned that, that players were trying to get action, if you will, on their, on their own teams and their, their own games, uh, on their, <laughs> assumedly. But uh, in the World Championship Series in 1906 between Canton and, and Maslin, uh, the rumors were going around that, that the, this two-game series was going to be fixed, 
that they were going to split the games and that they wanted to have a third game to make more money and have, you know, have more, pe- more people come out. Sort of something like you might hear of in boxing, you know, in, in back in the day. But yeah. um, they, uh, they denied it and, and the games went on. But, you know, one way or another, that's how it worked out. And people suspected that the games were fixed. And <laughs> very fun story about a bar fight the night after the second game that the Canton team lost, that uh, some of the fans were in the bar in Canton and, and were yelling that the games were fixed and the players were upset and they said, no, they weren't. And fists started being thrown and, and somebody went through a glass window, uh, just like in a Burt Reynolds movie. So <laughs> people... People wanted answers, and so the Maslin paper responded the next day with a front-page headline story denying that the uh, games were fixed, however, admitting that there was an attempted bribe and that they had cut one of their players early, you know, before the games because of that. And getting into the weeds of the story, it also accused the Canton captain of polluting in this game, while... My great-grandfather was the captain of the Tigers. It described how he was offered a bribe but refused it. And there was $50,000 of cat, you know, a pool for to split amongst the players that would do this, which wow. is over a million dollars today. Yeah. So very, uh, and you know, tempting. But uh, the story I heard growing up you know, from my grandmother was also that he would do it and that he was recognized for his character and integrity and reporting this and, and they tried to defuse it all, but the uh, the fallout from the Canton captain suing the paper and the, the Maslin team for libel and denying you know being part of it um, never died. Uh, he he didn't have enough money to get to court, but there were depositions taken, and it took over two years to play out. But without a resolution, the the case went down in infamy and uh, as a cold case, but people lost their trust in, in, in the integrity of the game. So, so. Oh, we uh, have apparently lost uh, Greg for a moment anyway. Uh, Greg Fasseri, author of the book, uh, Gridiron Legacy, lots of uh, interesting uh, anecdotes and stories in there regarding the origins of professional football. I uh, hope to get uh, Greg back because there's one very interesting story that uh, I wanted him to uh, relay to uh, our audience today, but we seem to have lost them. Uh, lost him for the moment. Uh, Greg, you there? Apparently not. Uh, so, Cat, uh, maybe we can try and uh, and get him back before the show uh, comes to an end on this. Uh, Wednesday morning. Our thanks to uh, Neil Levesque for being with us during the uh, the early part of the show here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. And uh, Hurricane Adelia has uh, made landfall uh, in Florida. That's the uh, latest news right now, Hurricane Adelia. I believe that's how you pronounce it. We have Greg on the line. Oh, okay. Greg, uh, sorry about that. Uh, no problem. There's there's one story that I I really wanted you to uh, to touch on. There were so many in this book. I mean, it is a treasure trove of of uh, you know great great stories. But uh, there there is a portion in the book about uh, pro football's Jackie Robinson. Uh, 
Charlie Fallis. T- tell us about that. Sure. Well, we're still having difficulty with uh, Greg's line, unfortunately. Uh, to play for a team called Shelby, you know. And well, again, it's still it's still breaking up, uh, and uh, I apologize, Greg, that uh, we're having difficulties. And uh, it, it's a great story, and uh, I, I will just try to capsulize it, and that is that uh, pro football's Jackie Robinson, the first African-American player in the National Football League, was uh, Charlie Follis, F-O-L-L-I-S. Charlie Follis was the first African-American football player uh, in the NFL. And one of his teammates... One of his teammates was Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey, the same Branch Rickey that brought Jackie Robinson into Major League Baseball in 1947. So Jackie Robinson, uh, uh, you know, was the first African-American player in Major League Baseball in 1947. But the man who made it all possible, Branch Rickey, was a, a teammate of the first African-American player in the NFL, Charlie Fallis. So very, very interesting. And uh, we thank Greg for being with us today. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, his line went down. Uh, maybe it had something to do with the hurricane. I don't know. Hurricane Idalia uh, made landfall along Florida's Gulf Coast uh, just recently. As a powerful Category 3 storm, heavy winds battering the coast and power outages have been mounting. The storm came ashore near the coastal community of Keaton Beach in Florida's Big Bend region at about 7.45 this morning, packing maximum sustained winds of 125 miles per hour, according to the National Hurricane Center. The storm pummeled the coast with rain and powerful wind and uh, On its approach, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said, don't mess with this storm. Don't do anything that will put yourself in jeopardy. The storm's eye was recently moving just inland from the coast, according to the Hurricane Center. Catastrophic storm surge and damaging hurricane force winds continue, according to the Hurricane Center. Storm bands were already sweeping across the Panhandle and the peninsula before Idalia hit bringing powerful wind gusts and rain, forecasters said. More than 140,000 utility customers in Florida were without power uh, early today, according to uh, poweroutage.us. The power temporarily went out while the governor was holding his morning news briefings. More than 30 Florida counties are under evacuation orders. Some of the mandatory schools across the state have canceled classes President Biden has approved Florida's federal emergency declaration. So heavy wind and rain expected in many parts of Florida today due to the uh, latest hurricane as we are right now in the peak of uh, hurricane season. So I don't know if that had anything to do with Greg uh, losing his phone line. I know he's in Georgia, but uh, I don't know if they're uh, suffering uh, any wind damage or whatever, but 
thanks to Greg for being with us today. Thanks to uh, Neil Levesque. And tomorrow we'll be talking about cars and uh, vehicles of all sorts as Dan Weed will join us in studio. If you have any questions for Dan, you can always call us at 603-224-1450. 224-1450. Dan Weed, Weed Family Automotive, will be with us on the Thursday edition of Kale & Company, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Make it a great Wednesday, everyone. <laughs>